Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, folks. Today's episode is part two of a two-part series. I released a couple of weeks ago, I released an interview with Dr. Bill Lawrence, who is the um, the longevity expert and researcher who is currently in the midst of a trial using bioregulator peptides to see how they influence people's biological age versus their chronological age. And the way that they're measuring that age is by measuring their telomeres and also measuring DNA methylation using the Horvath DNA methylation clock. Now, in the first episode, we talked extensively about the telomere results, lengthening results, and that was pretty amazing. And today, we're going to talk about the DNA methylation of results, which are also great, not quite as dramatic, but very meaningful as well, and definitely a step in the right direction. Now, we do spend some time at the beginning of this episode reviewing some of the background information from the first episode, but we don't talk about the results. So if you missed episode one, I encourage you, and it doesn't have to be before this episode, but I encourage you to go back and listen to it. I believe it's episode number 42. The link will be in the show notes. Um, also, if you're listening to this on Google, Spotify, iTunes, you're going to also want to watch the video on um on YouTube, because we use slides quite a lot in this episode. So it may be that you don't have time to watch a video right now. So you might do a first pass just listening to it. And then uh, when you have a little bit more time, maybe sit down and spend some time with the video because um, there's great pictures, great graphs, all that kind of stuff. So that's it. Uh, Dr. Lawrence is, as I said, as we've said before, he's a longevity expert. He works as he actually works for the St. Petersburg Institute of Gerontology and Bioregulation. And he refers to Dr. Vladimir Kavinson as his boss. So he's running these trials in collaboration with Dr. Kavinson and what they are using as their bioregulator peptides are the oral Kavinson peptides. These are the oral animal sourced bioregulator peptides. So this is all that they're using. They're not using injectables. They're not using the synthetic version. They're only using the oral version. So I know that a lot of people have been reaching out to me, asking me um, what they're using. And that's, that's what they're using in this clinical trial. Um, what else can I tell you? If you're, if you have any questions, if you have any comments, you can reach out to me. You can reach out to me through my website, which is natnidham.com. You can also find me on Instagram at Natalie Nidham on Instagram and also Clubhouse. I host a Clubhouse 30-minute room every Wednesday morning at 8.30 a.m. If anybody's interested in checking that out, although that is a group, it's not my group, um, but it's a group that focuses really on women 50 plus. Uh, so of course, bioregulator peptides are very relevant for that group. But if you're a guy listening to this, um, you might not get quite as much out of that room. How else can you connect with me? You can find me on Facebook in the Optimizing Superhuman Performance group. 
Um, that's a group that you would have to ask to join. Uh, when you do, please give me your email. I know people don't like giving their emails, but I promise you I won't spam you. It's just that I have a lot brewing this summer. I've got a newsletter coming. I've got a couple of courses launching. Uh, so if you want to be up to date and apprised of those things that are coming first, then give me your email and you'll be on my email list. Okay. I promise you I won't spam you. I won't sell your email to anybody. I don't have time to spend. I barely have time to keep up with what I'm doing. <laughs> um, the other place you can find me, if you're really not a Facebook person, you can find me on this biohacking superhuman performance group on MeWe. Um, and um, that group is smaller. It's not quite as active. It's more of a backup group in case something happens to Facebook, but it's definitely there. There's some great people in there as well. It's just that I'm not able to be there as much because I'm just too busy with everything else that I'm doing. Um, what else can I tell you? If you get value from this episode or any of my, the, the podcast episodes, please make sure to leave us a review because that's what helps us to rise up the rankings and to get amazing guests for you guys. And also, if you get value from the episode, make sure that you share it with friends, family, your networks, anybody who you think would also get value. And I'm also going to invite you guys um, for to another opportunity, which is if you come across an amazing product um, in the biohacking space, in the longevity, in the anti-aging space, then make sure to shoot me a note about it because I'm always looking for new stuff and I'm only one person. So some of my most amazing guests have come from suggestions from listeners just like you. So if there's anything out there that you think I should know about and that I should be covering, then shoot me a note and I'll see if I can make it happen. And finally, I do want to articulate our the disclaimer that everything that's in this podcast is really for information purposes only right we're not diagnosing we're not treating any disease whenever you listen to this stuff and it kind of blows your mind you've got to talk to your doctor about it or find a practitioner you can work with on this stuff so that you can make sure that it's right for you as magical as peptides and bioregulators may sound to everybody and they really can be there's always caveats. There's always going to be people that maybe aren't quite ready for them or they're not the right thing for them. So please don't take any of this information as anything more than information and an ability to upgrade your knowledge so that you can become your best health advocate with your practitioner. So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you guys. I'm so grateful that you listened to the show. We are growing by leaps and bounds and it's all thanks to you. Thanks again and enjoy the episode. Hey folks, before we launch into the episode, um, we have a sponsor and our sponsor today is drinkhrw.com. And this company is all about the magic of molecular hydrogen. They make the most incredible molecular hydrogen products. Um, so they make these tablets that you can easily just drop into your glass of water every single morning as you start your day, which is exactly how I start my day. I start my day with two tablets of molecular hydrogen, this stuff, um, in water with a squeeze of lemon. And that's what I take my supplements with. So why do I do that? Um, I do this because molecular hydrogen is this amazing foundation uh, supplement that I include in mine and pretty much every protocol that I write for my clients. And I got to tell you, there's not a lot of things that I include for everybody because I do believe that everybody needs different stuff. Everybody has different needs. But when it comes to molecular hydrogen, when we talk about a supplement that can help to manage inflammation, reduce inflammation, it helps to reduce pain in many cases. Um, it helps to 
balance um, blood sugar, right? So improve insulin sensitivity. And um, when you hit even just those two markers, we are talking about already upgrading your body's ability to function really well during the day. Also really good for energy, really good for recovery for athletes. Um, it's a pretty amazing substance, especially when we think of the fact that molecular hydrogen, well, hydrogen as a molecule is the tiniest molecule. It's the first molecule on the periodic table, but it's because it's so tiny that it is able to get in where it needs to in the cell and initiate all of these incredible processes. Um, Drink HRW also has tablets that you can drop into your bathtub so that you can soak your whole body in it, get the benefits for your skin, get the benefits systemically into your body. So your skin is your largest organ of, of absorption, guys. So this is a great way to get your molecular hydrogen. It's also really great for people who've got aches and pains and who are sore. It helps to mitigate all of that inflammation. So um, what are some of the other reasons why you might want to drink molecular hydrogen. Well, as, as travel is starting to come back, is making a comeback, then I drink molecular hydrogen on my flight. I start 30 minutes before the flight and I take it every 90 minutes while I'm flying because when we're way up in the sky like that, we are actually exposed to radiation and molecular hydrogen has been shown to be helpful at mitigating the negative effects of that radiation on our bodies. So ultimately, Supplementing with molecular hydrogen is all about aging well. It's about longevity and it's about managing your body system so that you can look, feel, and perform your best. And this supplement, molecular hydrogen, delivers on these points like nothing else. Um, oh, and one of the things I forgot to mention is that molecular hydrogen actually combats oxidative stress. And it's not just anti-inflammatory, it's selective anti, in, well, actually it's selective antioxidant Plus, it also helps to support a healthy inflammatory response. So you guys, obviously, I can keep talking about this for a really long time. What I'm going to invite you to do is visit the drinkhrw.com forward slash superhuman website and check out the research for yourself. If you're one of those people that needs to see it for yourself, that needs to dig into the research, I will tell you that this website, these, this company's website is a wealth of information and it's not just about them. It's just about all of the clinical trials, clinical studies, all of the research you could imagine on pretty much any topic you can imagine around molecular hydrogen to help you to make your own decision about whether or not this is right for you. Like I said, I personally recommend it to all of my clients. I use it myself every single day. But for some of you guys, and for many of you guys, we should always be informed. These guys have one of the best repositories of information on this compound out there. So drinkhrw.com forward slash superhuman. And if you use promo code longevity 10, you will save 10% on your purchase, anything that you buy. And you can use that promo code over and over and over again. So thank you so much for staying with me through this and enjoy the episode. Welcome back, Dr. Lawrence. It is such a pleasure to see you again for our part two of our interview. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, as I've said before, it's actually a pleasure for me to be any place. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as we talked about earlier, I think if all of us took on that attitude of gratitude, we would all be better off for it. But you do have 
very special set of circumstances that kind of ups the ante for you in that department. So I guess maybe what we'll do today, because this is part two of a two-part series, people who are listening to this may not have listened to our first part yet. So maybe we can start with a very kind of condensed version of your story, what brought you here, and a little bit about what we're talking about today. Sure. Um, and why you're so happy to wake up every morning. <laughs> <laughs> yes, truly. Um, okay. Uh, I've had several careers. Uh, I started a professional career as, a, as a, uh, an attorney out of UCLA, uh, tax, estate planning, corporate taxation, and so forth. But I, I get easily bored with something once I've learned how to do it. Uh, for me, it's the learning process that I love. And so I went on and and was sort of an entrepreneur for, I don't know, maybe a decade. I was building medical buildings and shopping centers and radio stations and all a whole bunch of stuff. Um, the worst period of my life, because I, I've realized uh, I'm basically a hermit and I shouldn't be try to pretend to be an entrepreneur where you have to be out there in the world. <laughs> so a bad mismatch. Anyway, um, so then I went back to school, got a master's in psychology. Uh, I tend to be, you would call me obsessive, probably, so forth and so forth. Uh, did that for a while. Uh, the problem with that, though, is I was doing some therapy work and the uh, patients or the clients expect you to show up regularly. Otherwise, you facilitate all their, uh, their abandonment issues. Even my therapist won't show up. So anyway, I, must I did really that for, be in bad shape. Yeah, okay. yeah, did that for a while. Anyway, then uh, then my father died, and uh, I have the probably the world's worst longevity ancestry history. Um, all the males in my family line going back two hundred years, and we know that because the the church that I was raised in does a lot of genealogy work. So we had birth and death information on uh, people going back literally 200 years, not everybody, but a sprinkling. Um, mm -hmm. And it became clear that no male in my family line had lived to beyond 70 and only one man made it to 70, an uncle of mine. And uh, uncles and grandfathers died in their mid fifties. Um, my father had his first uh, myocardial infarction at 57, uh, fatal at 65. And at that point, I was in the middle of all of my entrepreneurial stuff, and I knew the family history, and I thought, is it important that I make another million or several million dollars, or is it important that I maybe be around to spend the money I've accumulated? Um, <laughs> very good in, thought process. I love yeah, that. Yeah, yes. a very easy choice, that one. And so I sold everything, um, went back to school. Uh, I got a PhD in nutritional science and have for the last 30 years been uh, working in the field, primarily in the work in the field of, of human longevity. And uh, let me think. Um, oh, I guess about seven or eight years ago, six years ago, I teamed up with uh, an institute out of Russia uh, that was far ahead of the rest of the world in the field that I was working in longevity. So and what motivates me, of course, is uh, I'm now, I'll be 75 in uh, September, um, and I'm five years older than any male that's ever uh, survived in my family line. Um, and I have a large family, 11 of us, and three of my siblings in their 60s 
have died in the last three years. Uh, a niece just died a few months ago at age 40. Wow. So what drives me is doing everything that I can to wake up tomorrow morning and 10 years from now and 20 years from now. And so my time is spent doing research on longevity and what we call health span. Uh, there's a difference, as you know, Natalie. Uh, yep, absolutely. And you have to have both. It, it, isn't, it isn't enough just to have a long life. You've got to have a long, healthy life so you don't spend the last 10 years in a nursing home. So that's basically for the last 30 years, that's what I've been doing. Amazing. Um, and, um, and, and I guess one other little piece of information for the people who don't, haven't watched the first episode is not only have you made it to the advanced age of 75 for your lifeline, uh, but, and we're going to talk about part of this today. And if you haven't listened to the first episode, I really encourage you guys to do so because in the first episode, we talked about uh, the, I guess, interim results, if you will, or results after three years of a clinical trial um, with, um, I guess it's the first part of the trial is with 39 people that Dr. Lawrence is working with and measuring their telomere length. So this is the length of those little shoelaces on the end of DNA that you can explain much more articulately what, what that signifies and also DNA methylation patterns to establish what people's biological age is versus their chronological age. Um, and your biological age um, is pretty impressive compared to your chronological age by any measure, like family history or no family history, um, what you've managed to achieve now. And you and this has been, and this is using bioregulator peptides, which are the stars of the show today, next to you, right after you. Um, but, um, but using through the use of bi- the, the strategic use of bioregulator peptides over the last number of years, um, Dr. Lawrence's biological age is now that of a 35 year old versus his chronological age of 75 years old. And in the first episode, we talked about some of the results of some of the people in the, in the clinical trial. And today we're going to talk about the DNA methylation results. Did I leave anything out there? No, you did a great job of summarizing. Right. So we're still there. So, <laughs> so telomeres um, was our first, like I said, telomeres was the first interview. We talk about those at length. I think maybe in, in your slides today, you might have a little bit of a summary of that part. And today we're going to talk about DNA methylation. So I'm actually, let's, I don't exactly know what your slides look like. So do you want to jump right into DNA methylation or do we want to go to the slides? Did you include some of the backup and background in that as well? Well, I put it all in one PowerPoint presentation. So Perfect. we'll just start, start through that. Let me uh, bring that, that up. Okay. Um, there it is. Perfect. Yeah. A, uh, a client of mine actually put this little slide together. He says that's that's Lawrence trying to pull that clock backwards and so forth. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I thought it was great. cute. Yeah. That is very cute. Okay, but let me get up here to slide. the slideshow. Perfect. Okay. I think away we go, uh, Natalie. Ready for liftoff. Okay. Uh, this is the aging paradigm that pretty much everybody has. You know, we start, you know, youthful and so forth, and over the period of seven decades, eight decades for some people, we end up, you know, 
becoming older, old, frail, um, issues, health issues, and so forth. Uh, but that's pretty much the accepted aging paradigm. One of the goals I have and the Institute has is to change that paradigm, and we'll show that later, a little bit later. So there are many theories of aging. In other words, there are lots of ways to intervene in the aging process, um, and all of them are important. Years ago, uh, oh, I don't know, 20 plus 20 years ago, I decided that I needed to find the most effective uh, what I call high leverage. In other words, things that I could do that would give pretty immediate types of benefits. And doing the research uh, that I was doing, uh, I determined that probably uh, modification of telomeres, uh, also uh, working with DNA methylation and organ regeneration, which is not shown on here, uh, would probably be uh, very important areas. I also included hormone replacement. And yeah. obviously, you know, obviously, as foundation, you have to deal with diet, clean up the diet. I was fortunate that, that uh, let me think, even before my father's death, I had um, replaced the standard American diet with a much healthier diet. Uh, it's difficult to have a clean diet in, in this country because of the processed food and the you know, the pesticides and the glyphosate and all the rest of that stuff. So, but anyway, um, so I focused on telomere DNA damage, and we're going to talk about that uh, in just a little bit. Um, I'm affiliated with the uh, a, an institute in St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, I'm affiliated with them because when, oh, I don't know, 10 years or so ago when uh, Google Translator, well, less than that, probably seven or eight years ago, when Google Translator became widely available, I could start reading clinical studies out of China, Russia, various other places, and I realized that the this group of Russians were light years ahead in the narrow, narrow area that I was interested in, which was telomeres at that point, strictly. Um, and so this is the group that I work with. I basically went knocking on their door uh, Oh, wow. Six, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And they were um, gracious enough, notwithstanding the sort of the American Russian, you know, relations, at least at the government level, they were gracious enough to allow me to come in and eventually join them. This is Professor Cabinson. He's my direct boss. Uh, the clinical studies that we're talking about, the telomere and the DNA are joint Russian-American uh, clinical studies. I am the director or administrator, basically, of those studies, but I report uh, back to uh, Professor Cavinson. Professor Cavinson is extremely well-known in Europe and pretty much the rest of the world, unknown here in America. Uh, he's been the president of various associations all over Europe having to do with gerontology and so forth. Uh, so, Little quick back. Oh, yes, this um, Professor Cavinson on the right, couple, two years ago, received uh, Russia's highest civilian award called the Freedom Award for his 40 some odd years uh, initially in the military as a medical doctor, scientist, and then later uh, with the clinic and the, far, and the Institute for his years and years of service to the uh, Russian people. Uh, what he's saying is basically that these peptides that we're going to talk about today are going to become the most crucial development. They are going to replace most pharmaceutical drugs because they are so effective, far more effective than 
than most pharmaceutical drugs and without any side effects. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I, I say kind of with a joke that that's his boss standing uh, yeah. to his right. Uh, President Putin, as probably people know, even in America, is very focused on his own health. Mm-hmm. And um, without saying too much, uh, I've never seen President Putin in the Institute. I see his doc, his personal physician there frequently carting out boxes and boxes of peptides. No, no doubt. No yeah. Doubt. Anyway, so what peptides are... Um, they, as as Professor Cavinson explains here, they're basically they're signal molecules that that regulate gene expression. Uh, they also are important in terms of cell differentiation and so forth. And when he says they increase the life sustaining resources, we're going to see later in some data slides what that really looks like. Okay. Um, the background, real quick, uh, these peptides is that. The Soviet military, um, back in the 60s and 70s, were sending out submarine personnel, young submarine sailors uh, and the officers, men in their 20s and 30s, on short, what we would consider today short missions, three months, four months at a time. And they were coming back uh, in these submarines that were built in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. with a nuclear reactor inside with very poor protection. They were coming back with all sorts of medical issues, as you no can doubt. imagine, Yeah, uh, particularly um, immune system, uh, thymus system issues and so forth. And so the Soviet Union said, we can't have this happening. Um, and so they turned to Professor Cavinson, who was a Uh, military doctor scientists at the time and a group of other scientists and said, you need to figure out how to regenerate her, how to rehabilitate these uh, sailors and so forth. And so they threw lots and lots of money. Professor Caffison tells me that the amounts today would be astronomical and and not even possible uh, given the dollars in those days that they used. So what they did was, uh, most people I think understand that very few scientific discoveries are just, you know, a scientist waking up in the the morning with that light bulb above his or her (laughs) head that goes on. the way that it works is you build on the discoveries of those prior to you. And that's, of course, what happened with these peptide bioregulators. This is Ivan Pavlov. Most people are familiar with his name based on the digestive uh, studies that he was doing, particularly with the dogs, uh, what we call classical conditioning with the dogs. But what he really is well known for in Russia are his studies, his physiology studies on the human digestive system. Mm -hmm. And he really began to understand that process and the role of peptides, but proteins. And we're going to talk quickly later, but uh, peptides are simply small proteins. Uh, Scientifically, they arbitrarily have a dividing line. If you have a whole chain of what we call amino acids, uh, up to 50 of them, Uh, that's called a peptide. If you have 50 or more, it's called a protein. So it's Mm -hmm. a size differential between the two. But there's some dramatic benefits of a short chain of peptides versus a protein that we'll chat about. So this is Professor Cavinson in the military in charge of this development program. And they started using them for the submarine people very successfully. They were able to rehabilitate uh, the thymus. And then the pineal gland was the second uh, peptide uh, bioregulator that they came up with. Um, 
and they used them for then it spread to the general military as well. They used them in the cosmonaut program, what we call the astronaut program. Uh, they used them to recover after you know the, the cosmonauts would return to Earth and so forth. Um, oh, I, I couldn't bear to take this one out. Uh, <laughs> this, is the, this is my cutest one. Uh, this is Misha. Uh, you know, the, both the Americans and the Russians, they uh, obviously started with animals in terms of their space, you know, work and the space exploration and sending, you know, rocket ships and all that stuff up. And so this is little Misha. And I just love her little, you know, uh, space helmet that's sitting there next to her. It's spectacular. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, you know, I should take it out of the slide presentation, but I can't. Nah, it's it. okay. She, she's okay. worth 10 seconds. We're good. Yeah. Okay. Um, the Russians use the peptide bioregulators with their Olympic teams, again, mostly for recovery, both in terms of training as well as uh, competing and so forth, because they have muscle peptides. They have cartilage peptides that restore muscles, restore cartilage and so forth. Things that basically we don't, can't do very well here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, as I said, peptides are simply small little chains of amino acids, and amino acids are the molecules that come out of food, uh, and I'll explain in a moment where, how, how they become peptide bioregulators. Um, so you have amino acids over here on, on my left here, yeah. and that's just little molecules that, that come out of you know, a plant, they come out of animal food and so forth. When you start stringing them together, then they can become active in terms of doing things that are helpful in the body. And the Russians figured out based on Pavlov's work, <clears throat> work and then Kavinson's work, that if you have very short string, three, mostly three of these together, they're so small when there's just three of these amino acids that they can go right through the digestive system intact. They can pass through the cellular membrane, which is, you know, critical, and they can also pass through the brain, uh, blood brain membrane as well. In other words, they can get into the cells and do things that we're going to talk about in a few moments. And they pass the cell, the nuclear membrane as well, right? Yes, absolutely. That's so that that's why. But if you get the lar the large, the the more amino acids. So that is the longer the peptide bond, as we call it, then the less, less absorption that you will have. And when you get to a protein, it, it, it's even less. Right. And I guess, it's, so my understanding on the bigger peptides that are not the bioregulators, so the ones like BPC-157 or thymosin beta-4 that are 15 and 43 amino acids long, I mean, these are still tiny molecules, but they're much, much bigger than the bioregulators we're talking about today. So whereas the bioregulator actually can cross into the nucleus and bind to actual DNA to initiate protein synthesis, those bigger peptides are therefore relegated to bind to receptors maybe on the cell membrane to initiate cascades of events within the cell, but they kind of work from the outside in. Well done, exactly. In fact, we're going to show in a moment. I think I right. left this one in. I did. Oh, you Your did. timing is amazing. Oh. <laughs> okay. So what we have here in, in the, the center uh, here, this is a the peptide, okay? And it's little, it's a th uh, three amino acids. It happens to be the pancreas peptide. It's three amino acids. So there's little clumps of three you know, different colors here, I think red, blue, and white are the, are the color. So you clump these little amino acids together in a substance, okay, put it in a capsule or whatever. And what happens is that it's absorbed and this is the DNA, okay? 
mm-hmm. here. Okay. So, on the, what it, so we can't see your pointer here. So people, what, oh. what Dr. Lawrence is pointing to, pancreagen is the pancreas, it's the pancreatic bioregulator. And to the left here, what you're actually seeing is DNA and you're seeing this magical, how it just fits. The, the amino acids line up and they're attracted to their site, if you will, on the DNA specifically. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, so um, we, we use the um, peptides for longevity. We also use them to mitigate uh, health issues. And so this happens to be a study that I decided to, to leave in here. Uh, this is Gazprom, a very large oil and gas operation um, in Russia, Ukraine, and so forth. They were doing what we call a morbidity study. In other words, they wanted to find out if they could use these peptides to reduce sickness and days away from work. So they did a study, uh, 11,000 some odd employees who went on uh, six different uh, bioregulators. And Natalie, I'll use, I guess you can't see the, uh, the little laser thing at all, can no. you? No. Okay. So they use the, um, the immune system peptide. They use the brain. They use the arterial blood vessel peptide, the bronchi, which is respiratory, the liver and the cartilage. Uh, and they gave these to these employees, 11,000 of them for one year. The control group of 3,000 employees did not use any of the peptides. They just used their normal vitamins and things of that nature. At the end of a year, again, we're looking at sickness and days away from work. The purple over on the left is the control group. Um, and I don't, I don't have the numbers there, but we're showing the concept here. With the, with the peptide group, there was a reduction of 2.7 times the amount of sickness due to respiratory issues. And with regard to total, what we call morbidity or total sickness days away, there was a reduction of 2.3 times versus the control group. In other words, okay. go ahead. Question for you. So it said in the last slide that the control group got multivitamins for 30 days. Uh, it, it may have been 30 days. What they were making the point was that they didn't get anything in the way of peptides. Right. So they just yeah. didn't get peptides. So. Yeah, they just okay, did yeah. whatever they do. Okay. All right. And and I can't remember from the details of the study if, if they were provided vitamins for 30 days or whatever the case may be. Okay. The, the idea behind it was you had a control group, no peptides. You had a very large group using peptides. What was the benefit? And, right. as you and can nobody see, knew what they were taking anyway. So there would be no yeah. expectation right. on right. anyone's part. Plus, these people are working in Siberia, guys. So And they're working for you know, in Siberia in really tough conditions, high stress levels, um, not the most cozy, comfy living conditions you can imagine. Yes. <laughs> so um, everybody's kind of struggling here and nobody's expecting that they're being given these life-changing um, substances, really, I would imagine. Okay, so um, I'm going to quickly go through this because I want to get to the DNA methylation. Um, yeah. To demonstrate the effectiveness, the peptide bioregulators, uh, it's uh, not easy, but it, but it's it's uh, you can see the results, no pun intended, by looking at vision or retina scans. Mm-hmm. So we have a bunch of before and afters coming up here, where before treatment. So on the left, at least my left that I'm looking yeah. at here, which this is a, a a field of vision scan, and what you see here, what you want is 
all green. That means good vision. So on the left, you see and here with diabetic retinoplasty that there is some greed in the center, but where you see the black and the red and the yellow, that means there's degrees of impairment. And of course, black means you have no vision. Red means, you know, very limited. Yellow is problematic. And so the, this patient on the left uh, started at that baseline uh, after a couple of years of treatment. And I don't remember for each of these slides uh, how long, but a couple of years with the peptide bioregulators uh, got the result that we see on the right, where there's mostly green and just a little scattered red and, and uh, yellow and black. And so the difference is the person on the left probably really struck to go through life with limited vision. The person on the right probably just had a minor little bit of interference. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is that here in the States, there is really no effective um, uh, pharmaceutical or medical intervention for retina issues. Uh, there's some eye drops that are used uh, and some experimental things and so forth. But the Russians have been treating uh, with bioregulators for 30 years, these kinds of conditions very successfully. So quickly, here's retinitis pigmentosa. Uh, yeah. Again, you see on, on the left, lots of black. Uh, and on the right, a lot more green and less black and so forth. Unbelievable. With and retinitis pigmentosa is considered, again, untreatable in yes. North America. It's, it's a progressive disease, untreatable, uh, yeah. at least in America. Uh, macular degeneration, uh, I would say if between the two, I would say there's a, what, 60 to 70% improvement uh, between the, the, uh, the two field of vision scans. And glaucoma, the same thing. These are harder to see, but you see a lot more green on the right-hand yeah. side and less black. So, Unbelievable. Yeah. So that's that basically is the power of these peptides. And that type of thing is true for all of the organs, all the major organs, because there's 23 of what we call the natural peptides, organ specific. And the interesting th thing about the peptides is similar here in America to the uh, thyroid uh, I think you call armor. The natural one is called armor. And I think yeah. the synthetic is synthroid. Yeah, so desiccated thyroid, which is actually taking desiccated thyroid gland. Right. Um, yeah, so let, let's actually quickly talk about the source. I didn't uh, talk about that. Just like the the armor uh, comes from, from pigs, these peptides are derived from 12-month-old calves that are very carefully raised, and then their organs are taken, they're uh, filtered, processed very, very carefully, and they extract the, um, the amino acid acids from the tissues of, of a particular part of the calves. And so they have, they extract uh, the tissue or the, the amino acids uh, from, let's say, the retina, the pancreas, the kidney, the liver, the brain, uh, basically all the major organs. So there's 23 of these various um, natural, what we call natural or cytomax peptides. The interesting thing is that when you take, let's say, the pancreas peptide, since we showed the, uh, the DNA uh, bonding, if you take a pancreas peptide and you swallow it, or you take it by injection, some of them are injectables, the peptide goes to the designated organ, it's, or what we call organ-specific. So it travels through the, the body, the blood, uh, the tissues, and so forth, and ends up binding with the pancreas, okay? Or the brain peptide goes to the brain and the liver peptide goes to the liver and so forth. So 
now we're at the epigenetic methylation study. Actually, one more thing before we get into that. The peptides that you're using in your clinical trial are the oral, for the most part, um, the oral actual animal extraction. They are, they are, yeah, they are strictly the animal oral capsules. Um, the peptides from the Institute come in a variety of forms. They come as sublinguals. They come as injectables. Uh, but we only use the oral capsules uh, for, the, for the clinical study because we want to be consistent and show that the capsules that anybody can swallow mm-hmm. are safe. And secondly, that they're effective. Right. And so we don't use anything other than the oral capsules. Great. Okay. Methylation, very, very complex subject. There are entire medical textbooks, many textbooks written about methylation. It's a chemical process. Um, uh, And when I try and explain it, I I sometimes revert to, it's like you have this huge chemical factory. Okay. It's called our body. Mm -hmm. And it's processing all sorts of chemicals. Um, And those chemicals, as you can see here from from the slide. Uh, Natalie, is, is our uh, photo blocking some of that? Nope. I don't think so. Okay, good. Um, I, you know, on the far right, I'm seeing like, um, I mean, on the left, there's like this beautiful orange sun and on the right, it kind of ends with a dotted line in the bottom right hand corner. Is there anything else to it? Uh, no, can you, but you can read everything. Yeah, neurotransmitter production, detoxification, histamine metabolism. Okay, metabolism. okay, good. Okay. Because yeah. um, I, I want people to be able to see the information and, and not your pretty face. No, we, my, uh, my face is very small on the side where it should be. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, good. Anyway. Way off um, to the side. <laughs> okay, good. So it's a, it's a biochemical process, methylation, and it's vital. You, we, we can't live without methylation occurring, okay? It, it's uh, important for every aspect, as you can see, the, the list down here. And that list is just is a small sampling yeah. of what happens. So it's a chemical process that goes on literally a billion times a second. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing process. Um, I'm not going to read this uh, because the, uh, this is going to be YouTube. People can look at it uh, at their leisure and so forth. It is fundamental. Methylation is fundamental to energy processing. We don't have energy if you don't have methylation. Right. Um, and it can get more technical. This is a little bit more of the, of the technical uh, part of it, uh, where Dr. Horvath is talking about that it's chemical changes to something we call cysteine, which is a part of a DNA base, or some of the letters, as he talks about in the genetic code. Um, and basically what happens is that there are changes in our DNA that are um, impacted by changes in methylation. And his group of scientists, Dr. Horvitz at UCLA, um, they spent years and years studying all of this. And what they discovered, very oversimplified, is that as we age, that there are changes to the chemical factory output of what I would call methylation, and that the changes turn on genes that are sort of anti-aging and but they turn off genes. That, I'm I'm getting this backwards. What they do is it it turns on genes that truly are anti-aging. That is, you don't want them uh, around because they interfere with the aging process. Okay, I'm I'm mixing this up. Yeah, there's. And I'll I'll help you out here. It turns yeah. on. It basically, if you imagine genes as being switches, 
So it flips the pro-aging switch up so that yes. you get more degradation and it turns down the anti-aging switch. So something that might support rejuvenation, right? We rejuvenate when we're young quite effectively. And as we age, those rejuvenation processes start to wind down a little bit. We're less able to repair and restore from damage, if you will, for whatever reason. Yes, thank you. In Russia, we talk about anti-aging in a different way than we talk about it here in America. Um, So what what happens, as you've said, is that we have genes that get turned off that relate to aging that we don't want turned off as we age. We also have genes that get turned on that we don't want to have turned on. So the the system has gone awry, basically. The, The chemical plant is putting out things that are become toxic and not helpful at this point. So Dr. Horvath's team spent years and years. When I say his team, there were 60 some odd uh, uh, scientists from around the world working on this. Wow. And what they did was they figured out that, that this methylation, I call it dysfunction, or where you're, you're switching you know, around to, to a toxic situation in terms of aging, where it was, they knew it was going on. They didn't know why, but what they did figure out after five years of, of uh, work and building on other what we call clocks, methylation clocks, aging clocks, they did figure out how to measure it. And the measurement is, is fascinating. They can, with fairly uh, effectively, they're able to, in terms of accuracy, they're able to figure out by looking at these methylated, what we call GPC islands, they're able to look at and tell you basically from a biological standpoint, how your aging biologically differs from your uh, chronological age. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they took 13,000 blood uh, samples that had been stored uh, where people had given, you know, a, a blood sample for say just a general physician checkup, but the blood had been stored by LabCorp, by uh, Quest and so forth, um, 20 years earlier, and the people had died. Uh, so they had the death information, they had the stored blood. And so they went through and they did their uh, logarithm analysis that was proprietary, that is they literally created it. Um, and what they were able to do was by looking at that stored blood 20 years earlier, they were able to predict within about 1.7 to two years the longevity of that individual. Wow. So at what age that person would have died? So they were able to, based on the blood samples that they looked at, without knowing that person's age of death, they were were within 1.7 to two years close of when that person died. Yes, exactly. That's super cool. Exactly, yeah. So what they're using it for at the moment is to determine if a person has accelerated aging. In other words, they can look at this and say, well, based on uh, you know your uh, blood work and so forth and these methylation you know uh, things that are going on you're aging four years faster than your chronological age they don't know why that is Mm -hmm. and as we'll get to oh this is the more the more scientific explanation where it's a hypomethylation versus a hypermethylation Uh, But let's skip through this as Natalie has already given us a good explanation. So um, in the telomere uh, section that we did before, 
telomeres I liken to the tires on an automobile because what telomeres are, are, as Natalie said, they're the end caps on our chromosomes. And every time the cell replicates, we lose a little bit of that end cap. And when you lose enough of that end cap, then what we start to see at that point is old age sets in, people become vulnerable to various diseases and uh, they become frail and so forth and they start falling, et cetera. So the telomere study is basically how to relengthen those telomeres. And so that's why I use the, the tire um, analogy. Yeah. So the DNA methylation differs from that in that the DNA methylation is lo looking at, you might, if we use the car metaphor, is looking at all of the running components, the engine, the transmission, uh, the computer, onboard computer system. It's looking and measuring, you might say, the biological age of all these component parts huh. to come up with an average biological age for the vehicle. Okay, because it's looking at a master DNA, right? It's not looking, because you can look at methyl, you can look at, I know you can look at telomeres specifically for cardiac muscle or like organ specific. Yes. DNA methylation, is that the same as well, that you can look for at DNA methylation patterns that are organ specific, but in the context of the study that you're doing, you're kind of taking a global look at DNA methylation. Yes, the, 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 system. the uh, level of testing and reporting that's available now commercially you know, to us, uh, basically is giving you an average DNA methylation biological age for the human body. Um, they do have the ability to be more specific, but only at the university lab level at this point in time. Okay, great. Okay, so what I, I want people to understand is telomeres are tire tread, and DNA methylation is the running components, or in this case, all of the organs and so forth. People don't realize there's 78 identifiable, at least at this point, scientifically identifiable organs and systems in the human body. People tend to think in terms of, well, there's the liver, there's the kidney, there's the pancreas yeah. and so forth. There's, there's actually 78 organs. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay, so uh, Professor Horvath published uh, a couple of years ago, basically uh, his what's called the Horvath epigenetic clock, yeah. uh, where he was saying, look, we can basically tell you the difference between your chronological age and your biological age. Um, and why is that important? Well, Horvath says it's probably handy to know that you're aging quicker than your chronological and you might want to do something about it. But what he then says is, unfortunately, we don't know exactly why this is happening. We know it's associated with methylation issues, but more importantly, we don't know how to fix it. Uh, I'm going to come back to this epigenetics in a moment. Yep. Uh, so what they're doing is this, basically, you know, it's, it's a metaphor here. They're measuring the biological age of all of the working components of the human body, you might say. And that's over an exaggeration, but that's the concept. Uh, let's come back to this. I want to go. Yeah. What he found or what is, when I say he 60 scientists and he, um, what, what he they found, <laughs> I'm sorry, what's that? What he and his team found. Yes. 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 And it's a big team and, and, and it's a team all over the world. I mean, I mean really bright people. Um, what they found was that if you are eight or more years older biologically or DNA methylation wise than your calendar age, you have 
double the risk of dying compared to your same age peers. On the other side of it, if you're seven years, he says slower, if you're seven years younger, I'll call it, yeah. from your, than your chronological age, you have half the risk of death compared to your peers. Cool. All right. Okay. So um, this is a graph that I put together that shows uh, basically that. So if we look at the x-axis, that's the years older than your calendar age, and it right. goes from zero up to basically up to eight, okay? That's as far as their research uh, took us. And on the uh, y-axis here, we have the percentage increase in mortality risk. And we're going to come back to this graph a, a couple of times. So now I'm showing this as a leaner, linear progression. It's not, okay? No. It's, but the idea is to show you that there is a relationship between being older uh, DNA-wise than your calendar age. Now, the other side of that is where you have you're younger than your, um, your DNA is younger than your calendar age, you have a decreased mortality risk. And so, for instance, if you look at the, the number five, this person's five years younger than their chronological age DNA-wise, they have a 35% reduced mortality risk compared to their peers. Right, right. So, so there's, so, and, and, you know, I think to the people listening to this, What's important to talk about here is we're, we're getting to is that uh, Dr. Lawrence and his work that he's done is now showing that it is possible to influence these numbers. Um, and, you know, we know that lifestyle, diet, all of these things can really help. But what we're getting at here is that we, there, there are things that can be done that seem to be able to cause, create a reversal and improve people's outcomes. And notice that it's 35% reduced risk of death. So it's not 0%. So things can still go sideways, but the odds start to move in people's favors, let's say. Well, well summarized, uh, Natalie. Um, I went back to this cancer uh, one because they also discovered that for each one year increase between chronological and what we, we call this epigenetic age, Okay, it's the DNA methylation epigenetic yeah. age. There was a 6% increased risk of developing cancer within the next three years and a 17% increased risk in the next five, dying of cancer in the next five years. And so that's for every one year increase in that gap between your chronological and biological age. Yes. Wow. So even at one year, you're starting to see a significant, you know, a not increase in risk. Increase. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was one other slide that I skipped yeah, through. I think go back a couple more, maybe. There it is. Epigenetics. Oh, epigenetics, yeah. Yeah. So what we're what's going on here is lots of, but most people think that genetics are um, a huge influencer of what happens in our life in terms of biologically and so forth. And uh, back in the day, I would say thirty years ago, when I began working in this field. The, the thought was that it was probably 50% um, uh, of what's going to happen in a person's life is controlled by their genes. Over the years, as their science has gotten more sophisticated, they've realized that genes are not that controlling. They're certainly very significant, but most recently I saw an article a few months ago where they're estimating, they think that, that gene impact is probably somewhere in the area of now of 10 or 15%. Wow. 
Yeah. Because so, the, the whole field of epigenetics has been sort of been growing up. And what epigenetics are is all of the other factors other than genetics that impact our health, our longevity, et cetera. And this can be things like stress. It can be the environment that we live in. It's what we eat, our diet and so forth. Um, how physically active we are or are not. I mean, virtually everything else uh, that goes on falls into the field of epigenetics. And as the gene influence has weaned or decreased, the epigenetics has grown because we now have enough clinical studies and experience that we see that people are not hostage to their genes. They, in fact, can, can have a huge amount of say-so about what happens to them biologically based on epigenetics, basically how, how they create their life in terms of biological impact. Love it. Yeah. And this is, this is what we repeat to people over and over again. You can, you know, it's um, your genes load the gun in your environment or the things that you do is what ultimately pulls the trigger or throws on the safety catch. Right. So you you have a lot more control, you know, and for some people, sometimes you wonder if they even want that control, but definitely for people to get their heads around that they can control or have a very significant impact on their health and outcome, it's it's a powerful realization. And, and for many people, it's what really moves them to take those positive steps in their lifestyle and the things that they do. And, and the really good news about this is that because we've realized that epigenetics trumps genetics, yeah. you therefore have the ability to control a tremendous amount of what happens to you. I'm actually a pretty good example of that. Yeah, exactly. You are a walking, breathing example of that, for sure. Yeah, the genetics in my family has to be driven, you know, somewhat significantly by genetics, but also, you know, the lifestyle. You know, I I know enough about my family over the generations and so forth. They, They basically lived in fairly toxic environments and the men didn't take care of themselves. And that's why heart disease was killing everybody, et cetera. Um, now we get to, uh, well, before I leave that, so I am so pleased that with the science world of epigenetics growing as it is, what that says is I do have control and I'm five years older than the oldest man that's ever lived, which is, I think, proof that epigenetics really has a tremendous impact. Yeah. And, and you're taking epigenetic influence to the next level with these bioregulators, which is what we're going to get to here. Yes, right? that's There's right David. around the corner. In fact, it's almost the next slide. So yeah. Stephen Horvath, I mean, brilliant, wonderful man. Um, but what he says is, he says, well, yeah, it's great. We can measure this. And let's say that you're five years older. Uh, he doesn't see that that uh, is uh, really very useful because we don't have a pill or an intervention. Okay. Yeah. Now I have a question for you. Have you ever spoken to Dr. Horvath? No. Interesting. No. I'll bet you if he had any inkling of what you're doing, he might be super interested to talk to you because you take this statement and spin it on its head, or it would seem that way anyway, without getting too crazy. But it sure yeah. would appear. <laughs> yeah. As a, as a hermit, I won't be reaching out to him. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know. Yeah. But <laughs> we, no, might it, have, we might have to arrange that discussion someday. Well, <laughs> I, I, 
for a lot of reasons, not just because I'm a hermit. Um, the Russians and I are kind of keeping a low profile, and I, I mm -hmm. won't spend much time on it. It's not because of the American-Russian thing, you know, where the Russians get blamed for everything, including the weather. Um, it has to do with the FDA yeah. uh, and the pharmaceutical industry. In a couple of years, the, we're convinced, the Russians and I, uh, both my attorney brain and my scientist brain, uh, are convinced that the pharmaceutical industry, because the nutraceutical field is a billion, multi-billion dollar industry now, yeah. they're going to decide that uh, they want the FDA to declare aging as a disease because yeah. aging is not a disease here. And when that happens, um, there's going to be a huge change in the nutraceutical field. You're not going to be able to make claims that this will intervene with your anti-aging program. This will modify, this will help and so forth. So we're kind of, you know, because you're going to see here in a moment, we are making incredible interventions in longevity. Mm -hmm. And so we just kind of want to be off the radar. So I'll, sure. I'll wait for Dr. Horvath to give me an email someday. All right. Fair enough. Okay, here we go. So the Russians were aware of all of this, uh, certainly by 2015, actually in, in the late 90s they were, um, but they published, started publishing some information in 2015. And, and the translation of that from science language into lay language is that the peptides can influence or regulate gene expression. Yeah. And, and that statement may not sound very important, but it is huge. It's big news. Yeah, big news. Yeah. And now we're going to show you the data. Okay. So uh, when I was first starting a couple of years ago to set this study up, uh, Professor Cavins and I, uh, what we did was we took people who had been on the telomere study uh, for at least two years or more, because the telomere study started basically in about 2015. So we had people on the telomere study for a number of years. So I took at random nine subjects tested them because the testing only really commercially became available in late 2000, well, sometime in 2018, Okay. Uh, commercial testing for, for this DNA. Mm -hmm. um, so I took nine people who had been in the telomere program for at least two years or more, tested them, and their baseline tests on average among the nine people, they came in at five and a half years, 5.42 years for two years younger than their chronological age. Chronological age is the black uh, line in the middle. Right. So these were people who had been on peptides for a couple of years. Now, it's not evidence. It's basically at most proof of concept. It's as an attorney, it's kind of suggestive, interesting mm -hmm. data. Yeah. Uh, but what it suggests is that, hmm, uh, it looks like maybe these peptide bioregulators can intervene Unless, you know, uh, and, unless there was some magical picking you know, like lottery tickets of nine people who at baseline were younger, which is not the case. Uh, these people were younger than their chronological age. So the other side, the green side that you see there, I also took then 15 people who had never been on peptides mm -hmm. and tested them for their baseline. And the baseline for those 15 people came in almost two years older. Than on their average, chronological age on average, right? Okay? And and how old were they? Do you, is there a commonality in terms of age, or were they all over the map in terms? All of over age? the map. Okay. Uh, well, when I say all over the map, uh, probably at that point nobody less than forty. Okay. Perfect. Uh, but I think the oldest person was ninety. Wow. Okay. Okay. 
So again, not evidence. It's data that is what we call proof of concept. It's it, right. it's suggestive. Okay. Well, because you don't have the information for those nine subjects who were five year five and a half years younger than their chronological age. You don't know where they were when they started before they they started the telomere pro- lengthening no. program. So no, exactly. So no. now moving forward, you're going to start getting that kind of data as you're doing your baseline before yes. people even start. And yes, then- exactly. Okay. Yeah, because the testing wasn't available until about 2018. That is amazing how new that science is, right? That's Mm -hmm. so cool. (laughs) Okay. So uh, you always experiment on yourself if you're an ethical scientist, as far as I'm concerned. And so this this was my baseline. Um, I had been on peptides for, oh, I don't know, three or four, maybe five years. Yeah, probably five years at this point. So, uh, well, it was three almost three years ago. Um, my chronological age is 72 there. And my DNA age, as this lab calls it, in other words, the DNA methylation age was 64. So I am eight years younger than my chronological age at, at, base, at baseline. Now, let's see what that translates into in terms. Of, and I'm also in the 99th percentile compared to my uh, same age peers. Okay. So let's see what that means. So if I'm eight years younger, that means I'm in the category here, you know, where it goes up to a maximum of 70. I have a 50% reduced mortality risk compared to other men at their age of 72. Wow. Yeah. And that's not even men in your family at the age of 72. Yes. Which I think would change that that percentage rather dramatically yes. if we, you know, if we had that that data, which we obviously don't. Yeah. Um, okay. Can I ask a question? And you may be talking sure. about this at some point, but is have you found? And I may I may really be jumping the gun here, but have you found that there's a relationship between the shift in people people's telomere age and people's shift in DNA methylation age, or are you combining the two? Oh, no, I'm not combining the two. Did, that, uh, the, did, that, did I articulate that properly? Yes, I, I know okay. what you're asking about. Um, all the people in the clinical studies are enrolled in both studies, okay? Okay. So we see their telomere progress and we see their DNA progress. Um, what I can tell you is that uh, there seems to be little relationship between people's tel- baseline telomere age, as, as we call it, Okay, yeah. versus their DNA methylation age. Hmm. Um, very little relationship there. In other words, I see people with really good telomeres and very poor DNA bio, you know, epigenetic clock oh. uh, numbers. Okay. Now, what is also interesting is that having done this for five years with telomeres, uh, we can move the telomere marker within about two years of using the peptide bioregulators. And uh, of course we showed in the, in the last telomere section, some pretty dramatic uh, telomere lengthening. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it, we're only about two years into the DNA methylation and then COVID slowed us down. So I'm just now getting uh, secondary testing from people uh, in terms of their DNA. It's a slower process as you would sort of guess with the DNA, because the DNA methylation is addressing 78 organs and systems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that may be part of it. Uh, there may be factors, the epigenetic factors that are harder or, or that are more impactful on telomeres than they are on the DNA. Because we know, for instance, uh, as we talked about in the telomere section, the number one thing that 
um, accelerates telomere loss is stress. Yeah. I suspect it's maybe true with the DNA, but we just don't have enough science and data at this point. Right. So this person is shows you the opposite end. This was a baseline person. He's one of those 15 people that hadn't been on peptides. His biological, I'm sorry, his chronological age is 57. His DNA age came back at 72. Oh, that's a bit of a bummer. That's, that's not a what bummer. See. Yeah, he's 15 yeah. years older DNA wise. Okay. Yeah. And he's only 57 chronologically. Hmm. So we go back to our chart and the chart stops at, at basically eight years older. So in his case, he's about at, at a 200, roughly a 190 or 185% increased risk compared to his peers of mortality. For, for some reason or another, which, you know, we can't define based on this information, but basically yeah. what this, this implies is there's enough in his system going sideways that just his risk of something going dramatically wrong. Yes. Is yes. And he's sick. now, of course, in the clinical study. In I'll fact, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah. Uh, and he's, he's a health, like, where do I sign? <laughs> yeah. And he's a, he's a health professional, too. Sure. Um, and very knowledgeable. Uh, you know, anyway, um, so we're just now actually this week. Uh, he's in uh, Great Britain. And this week he's sending in his secondary samples. Uh, oh, so, yeah. Wow. Okay, so let's keep moving on. So this is a person whose baseline DNA and chronological was exactly the same. Okay, yeah, uh, she was in the forty-fifth percentile, which is r- roughly half halfway. Okay, compared to her peers, so we put her on on a, a peptide bioregulator program, and I think it's eighteen months later. This is April of two thousand nineteen. Yeah, July of uh, well. Yeah, 18 months or more. So what we've done here is reduced her DNA age from 53 to 51. Nice. So she's reclaimed two years. Yes. But what that really means is that she's also a year older. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now there's a three-year difference between her DNA age and her chronological age. Look at she's moved up to the 81st percentile from the 45th. Nice. Now, when people, when they get their test results and they go look at this, particularly the ones who've gotten their telomere results and, you know, and after two years, they're 25 years younger telomere wise, they look at this and they go, oh my God, I only got two years. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty, they're pretty disappointed. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. They are. Um, Until I start to explain to them that we're testing two different things because what's the key is this next thing. And that is at two years, she has uh, gone from z- sort of z- zero increased risk. That is, she, she, at her baseline, she had the same mortality risk as her peers. Yeah. She now at two years is fourteen percent less. Yeah. Yeah. So, so somebody comes to you and says, you know, in eighteen months, I can um, reduce your mortality risk by fourteen percent. It's pretty good. Yeah. 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 No I mean, kidding. there's yeah, there's nothing else out there in the medical, the pharmaceutical, the nutraceutical, the unconventional, the conventional medical world that can do that, that can say, look, here's a 14% decrease in your mortality risk. And, and I also think it bears mentioning that in this particular clinical trial that you're doing, 
you're not directing people in any way in terms of what their diet should be, what their lifestyle should be, what they should be doing to mitigate stress. And so I'm sure that you're going to see significant variation without at this point being able to quantify why the variation is there. But, you know, as time goes on and maybe you you start to control for different things, if you should ever do that, um, you may find that, oh, someone who changes their diet or starts meditating or or is has just gone through the three worst years of stress in their life and has still seen this improvement in DNA age versus this other person whose life just became perfect. And now they've seen 10 years improvement. So there's all these other, there's all these other factors and influencers that you're not even controlling for or even trying to affect. Yeah, uh, that's exactly the situation. Uh, we don't make any changes in yeah. uh, what the people are doing in terms of their lifestyle, et cetera. The only ad- change that's going on is the addition of peptide bioregulators. Right. And actually, one other question. Have you seen from a trend perspective, do you see any difference between men and women? No. Have you noticed or looked for it to see, you know, in general, men seem to respond faster, slower, women or you're not even looking at that at this point. I'm not even looking at it. I, I am so um, focused and I sometimes I feel like I'm on a surfboard in front of a tsunami. Um, <laughs> Just stay on track, whatever yeah, you do. Yeah, my focus is, uh, you know, there's almost 100 people now. Uh, and since a year and a half ago, we only admit health professionals into, the, with a, a few exceptions, we only admit health professionals into the clinical studies. And uh, I'm up to my eyeballs in just uh, administering uh, those clinical studies. So I'll leave it to other scientists down the road uh, Mm -hmm. once they understand what we can do with the peptide bioregulators to start to tease out, you know, the secondary effects. You know, I am convinced, of course, though, that um, if one is doing everything reasonably possible, clean diet, exercise, reducing stress, and so forth. Intuitively, they probably are going to get better results quicker. Yeah, no, for sure they are. Um, Okay, let's keep going. Let's go on. Okay, so this is, uh, oh yeah, this is Daniel. Daniel is a health professional. His baseline in July of 2019, he was two years older uh, DNA wise than his chronological age, uh, putting him at, you know, a little bit, uh, increased risk. In fact, his risk at two years, he's 25% increased mortality risk compared to his same age peers where their chronological and DNA lined up the same. Okay. So we put him on the program, uh, I think two years plus, uh, at this point, and we reduced his uh, DNA age to 52. He's now increased age-wise two years. So now there's a four-year difference. Um, let, me, let me go back here. Uh, he was in the f- 16th percentile. Yeah. At the at beginning. Point. Yeah. And here he's... Let me, let me. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so now he's in the 86th percentile. He has a four-year difference. I called this the gap, G-A-P, mm-hmm. the gap, okay? Yeah. If you remember what we talked about in terms of Dr. Horvath's uh, team found the that if you're eight years older, 
Yeah. You have increased risk if you're seven years younger. Okay. So our goal with everybody in the study is to get them to at least seven years younger than their chronological. Mm -hmm. And it's the gap that we measure. So sometimes people will focus on the DNA age. And they'll say, well, but my DNA age only went down a year. In this case, I think it went down two years. Okay. Mm -hmm. From 53 to 51. But you also have to look at the fact that you're two years older. Yeah, exactly. So, so he slowed down. Yeah. yeah. So it's the gap I call the gap that we're looking at. He, this person has a now a four year positive gap, I call it, in that he's four years younger. And if we go to the graph, he went from, I think it was a 28% increased risk at four years younger. He has a 28% decrease risk. Yeah. No at this point. I mean, he's, he's went from high risk to low risk at this point. Amazing. Amazing. Um, Smithsonian uh, was, uh, wrote an article recently summarizing a number of clinical studies that suggest that 150 years may be the upper limit for human lifespan. Um, they basically are saying that it's possible that a human being could live that longer. Other scientists are saying 120 is the limit and so forth. Yeah, that's what we hear typically. Most the most quoted number is 120. But yes. you know, as you as you mentioned earlier, I think for a lot of people, certainly in my world or for me, I'm I'm happy to live to 120, but only I'm picky. <laughs> I'm, I'm only willing to live that long if I can keep taking care of myself and keep my wits about me to a point. Precisely, so. yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so okay, here's uh Here's what this is all about. This is the, the kind of the summary in a sense. Um, it's both enhanced lifespan, reduced mortality. And the way we do that is with organ regeneration. Okay. And here's the scientific data that proves that that's what we can do. Okay. So again, current aging expectations. Okay. That most people have. Yeah. Professor. So, so for those of you listening, listening, not watching, we go from baby to child to thriving adult and now to stooped over elderly person. So Professor Cabinson and I and the other scientists at the uh, St. Petersburg Institute, we have a very different paradigm. Look at that. Yeah. So after our stooped person, we have a very upright, well, we have that person in their prime reappearing pretty much. Yes, precisely. Now, here's the data. The peptides, as I mentioned earlier, are specific to you know, 20, some 23 different systems and organs, okay? Uh, I would call them the primary ones, even though I mentioned earlier there's 78 human uh, organs. There yeah. are these. There are 20, at least 23 that are really primary. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing with the peptides is much like the <clears throat> thyroid that we talked about earlier with with armor and so forth. I'm sorry, we were talking about uh, yeah, thyroid. Yeah, now. thyroid. Yeah. Like desiccated yeah. thyroid. Yeah. Yeah. Armor. Okay. Yeah. Um, what we're doing with the peptides is we can take these peptides, direct them to specific organs, and basically at the cellular tissue organ level, regenerate that organ. 
It would be like taking, you know, a, a, a beloved 57 Chevy. I had a 57 Chevy when I was in high school. <laughs> yeah. I have a fondness for them. Yeah. Um, it'd be like taking your beloved 57 Chevy in the year of 2021 into a master it. mechanic and yeah. say, spare no expense. I want you to go through and fix everything on in this vehicle in the running components of it and so forth. So it's like brand new. Mm-hmm. That's in a sense, I'm exaggerating a bit, but that's in a sense what we're doing with the peptides for organ regeneration. Now, let's see if there's some data that backs that up or my attorney says, show me the evidence. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so this is a study that was done um, in Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, if we look at the elderly people, the yellow over on the left, um, that's an age group of 60 to 74 year olds. And the control group in the middle, which means non-peptide people, people like peptides, just, they call it polyvitamins. They were just doing what they're doing with their multivitamins and so forth. Mm-hmm. If we drop down to, you see, Natalie, where it says mortality rate in the course of 12 years? Yeah. Okay. In the middle there? Yeah. Um, so this study ran 12 years. Uh, they, they did some evaluations at eight years, but it continued to 12 years. In the control group, the non-peptide group, 44% of these people died, which would be normal for that age group over that time frame. And the life in Russia and the Ukraine is a little more difficult. They don't have the same longevity that we have in the U.S., although the last couple of years, actually, longevity is decreasing in the U.S. compared to what it's been always increasing. And so they're closing the gap because of the obesity, the diabetes that we have here and so forth. Anyway, the point is 44% of these people died in 12 years, normal for that age group. On the next column over, that's the pineal gland peptide. That's one peptide, one type of peptide administered uh, to that group the mortality rate dropped in half to 22.3% with one peptide. That's amazing. And so are these, is this the study where they were administered this peptide only for three years? And then, so they got this peptide for three years and probably in cycles. I mean, we don't, I don't know if you know the details, were they taking the peptide for 12 months or? Uh, Yes, they were. Oh, they were. Because typically the way people are told, and you know, a lot of this is, a lot of this information is people are kind of guessing or they're trying to interpret studies that they're getting their hands on. And there's this lore out there that says, oh, well, you want to be using the pineal peptide once for, you know, for one cycle every six months. Um, but in this case, what they were doing is they used it for 12 months a year for three years, then they stopped and they were continue, they were monitored for the next nine years. Yes. So, so what's really interesting about this I I think is that it's exactly what you were talking about. It's this regeneration of the pineal gland. It's only through regenerating that you will actually get this kind of long lasting result. Precisely. Yeah. Uh, Unlike uh, Western medicine where they get put you on a a pharmaceutical and you have to stay on it basically for life, or at least that's the standard procedure. Because it's doing the work, right? What we, what we're doing here is we are truly regenerating organs such that after three years, for the next nine years, there was no peptides used whatsoever, mm-hmm. and the mortality rate dropped from 44 to 
Okay. That's, I mean, that's just amazing, right? And I think that what's important to highlight to people here is, is the importance of the pineal gland. So some of the people listening to this will know, but many people who may be coming to this podcast, this may be the first thing that they're, they're, their first exposure to this area is understanding the role that the pineal gland plays in human health and why anybody would maybe start with this one little tiny pea-sized organ in your, or gland in your brain and it is your master clock. It regulates circadian cycle, like circadian rhythm of the body really from the top. It upregulate, it helps to upregulate melatonin production. And people are like, well, big deal. So maybe I'll sleep a little bit better. Well, what people again don't understand is all of the downstream effects of just these two things that can result in this amazing kind of data. So yes, absolutely. Um what people can identify with is the pineal gland is the master regulator of our entire endocrine or hormonal system. Yeah. That they'll, they'll connect the dots with that. That's how important it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's go on in the interest of time. Let's look at the old people. <laughs> now be careful here. Well, it says old people. I'm, I listen, I would not, I, apparently I'm geriatric by definition, right? <laughs> okay. Old people. Okay. The Russians are not the most diplomatic people on the earth. <laughs> no, but that. that's okay. You know what? We'll just, we'll give it to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't call in a clinical study and they use it in the, in the clinical study, they call them old people. Anyway. Anyway. These old people who are at least two months older than me at the moment, <laughs> um, they're 75 to 89 years of age. Um, the study was a six-year study because, of course, of the age of the individuals in the non-peptide group, what we call the control group. During that six years, 81.8 or almost 82% of these people died, which would be normal for that age over that six years. Yeah, things start to go sideways big time at that age group. Yes. yes. So with the just again with the pineal peptide, the mortality rate or death rate was reduced to 45.8%, huge drop from 81.8. No but kidding. in this study, they added a second peptide. That's the thymus uh, peptide, the immune system, okay? Yeah. And at that point, when they added the second peptide, the mortality rate dropped to 33.3%. Amazing. So it went from almost 82% mortality rate to 33% over the six years. Amazing. Using two peptides. And so do we know how long these people got the peptides for? Two years. Two years. Wow. And also, what was the other thing? Oh, yeah. How many, do you have a sense of how many people were in the groups? Oh, I don't. I think several hundred, but... Uh, we're talking hundreds, not like 10. We're not talking 10 people here. We're oh, talking. no, 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 no. Yeah. Uh, there, there are so many studies. There's probably three dozen of these longevity studies that the Russians have run. And um, the smallest one that I've ever seen was 49 people. Wow. Okay. Even yeah. the rat studies, they have hundreds of rats. Like it is. Oh, I, yes. I remember I, I heard Dr. Kevinson speak about this once. He's like, you know, we had such big budgets. People don't realize how expensive lab rats are, but mm -hmm. they were able to have 200 rats in every study. Oh, yes. Which is, yeah. which is a luxury in, in this universe. Yeah, every time they develop a new peptide, as I say, they have 23 of these natural ones, it's animal studies for years uh, before they ever start uh, running the clinical studies. But the nice thing is that because these are sourced from calves, 
they are completely safe. In fact, uh, one scientist at a conference I was presenting at said, you know, Bill, what you're really talking about here is nano stakes. And it took me a minute to figure out what he was saying. Yeah, we're giving people nano stakes, tiny little, you know, tiny, tiny little stakes. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think I think there's a correlation here to be seen also with um, people on true carnivore diets that are eating that nose to tail diet and consuming organs. Mm -hmm. um, not that the organs eating an organ is necessarily as powerful as taking a, pe a bioregulator peptide, but those bioregulator peptides are in the thymus, the liver, the kidneys that people are eating. So, yes. you know, I don't really think it's that much of a stretch to start to understand where in some cases people on these, on these nose to tail carnivore diets are seeing such transformational health benefits. Um, pot, probably because their, their bodies are getting access that like the peptides are there. It just yes. may not be quite as concentrated as you're getting in the supplement. Yeah, these, these are, uh, you know, a thousand times more concentrated, 10,000, I, I wouldn't know and so forth. But, yeah. So there is nothing that I'm aware of. And and I say I'm obsessed with this. This is what I've been doing for 30 years. There is no other intervention. There are, are other good interventions to keep you healthy and extend life. We, we think that basically calorie restriction based on animal studies might lengthen life by about 20%. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the, the, the going uh, estimate at the moment. Yeah. There is nothing out there in the medical, pharmaceutical, conventional, unconventional field that I'm aware of that comes anywhere close to reducing mortality to this degree with a safe product. Yeah. Yeah, with no side effects. No and side actually, effects. we're going to, I don't know if you're done with your slide yet, because I have a couple of questions for you, but look at him. Who's I think only have a couple more. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. There's so, a cool car, though. <laughs> I, yeah, I had, I had to throw this in, okay? This is uh, Irv Gordon is his name. He's an American. He had this 1966 Volvo, and he is the holder of the Guinness World Record for the n highest number of miles driven in one vehicle. 3.2 million miles. Oh, my gosh. On this he car. He drove in this vehicle. Okay. And he was able to do that because he maintained this thing just unbelievably. Mm -hmm. Now. What's interesting, and the reason I have it in there, if you look at Irv and you look at the vehicle, you can see that I think the vehicle was probably maintained better than Irv. <laughs> I had a feeling you were going there. So yeah. for those of you who are listening, Irv, you know, he's a happy guy. He's got a great tan and he looks like he could probably stand to lose a few pounds. So uh, maybe 40 pounds or whatever. Yeah. Like and that. Unfortunately, the evidence of that, uh, I'm a data guy, is mm -hmm. Irv died last year at the age of 77. Oh. Yeah. But the car's still running. That's right. In fact, I think it was sold on eBay or it's, or it's listed on eBay or something. The point is this, of course, it's obvious. That is, if Irv had spent, you know, some amount of time maintaining himself, I think he spent too much time sitting in the driver's seat. Yeah, no kidding. If he had maintained himself nearly as well as that vehicle, you know, he could have lived another 10 years or so. 
and put a couple more million miles on it. That's a yes, pretty exactly. Sweet car. Yeah, yeah. I like that car. <laughs> okay, this is this is the last slide. Um, this is what I call the bridge. The bridge basically is that the idea is that you have to stay as healthy as you possibly can today in order to take care or take advantage of the, the medical discoveries, the biological aging discoveries, things like peptide bioregulators and so forth, st things like st uh, stem cells, exosomes, uh, the DNA repair things that are available. They list on here telomeres and so forth, the cloning, uh, all of these things that are being developed at the moment. And I'm because I, I pay so much attention, I'm privy, not unique to me, I, I just happen to be where I'm looking all the time, to things that are amazing. Within 10 years, it is very reasonable that we're going to be able to control diabetes, we're going to be able to control heart disease, we're going to be able to control cancer. Mm -hmm. About last year, uh, maybe even a little bit longer than that now, COVID kind of messes up the timing. Yeah. Um, some Israeli, really bright Israeli scientists came up with an intervention, a chemical process intervention for cancer used, tested on a variety of different cancers. People use the uh, complex, uh, and I'm not at liberty to, to really explain what it is at this point. Yeah. Um, they use this complex, basically swallowing capsules, much like the peptide bioregulators for three weeks. It stopped the progression and reversed the progression of all the cancers that they were using in the clinical study. You're kidding. It won't be available probably for a decade or two in America. It'll be available in a year or two in Israel. You'll go to Americans will go to Israel. It won't become available in America because the pharmaceutical industry, the medical industry and the FDA are going to make it very, very difficult to get approval. Yeah. Even even though it shows in the preliminary studies to be extremely safe and they have human studies. We're not talking about mice and rats. We're talking about human studies. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, the point is you've got to stay healthy in order to take a take get the benefits of what's available in 10 years. Um, if you can get to the next 10 years and be healthy you probably have leveraged up another 20 or 30 or 40 years, depending on how old you are at this point. For me, I believe that I can reach 100 and be about as healthy as I am today, Yeah. as long as I continue to do what I'm doing. Yeah, no, it sure sounds like it. That's amazing. That is, um, guys, if that's not motivation, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> to take care of the house. Um, and one thing I wanted to say about type two diabetes, would you say that, and I mean, I know I don't want to get too specific here, but I would have imagined that there's um, depending on the individual and a whole bunch of different factors that there are certain bioregulators that can be quite helpful. Absolutely. There's, there's a pancreas. Absolutely. There's a, a yeah. there's a specific bioregulator for the pancreas. Yeah. 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 So, which is, you know, which is interesting. So there's lots of really, there's already so many incredible tools that are, that are coming up at our disposal. Um, and I think these peptide bioregulators are absolutely, well, they're so cutting edge. And, and, you know, it's funny because they're so cutting edge. And yet at the same time, it's a solution found in nature. 
right? Yes, it's, that's the that's is, the wonderful part about it. Now, yeah, um, there is there are virtually no side effects, um, and so the dosing um, is there's no danger in dosing. There's you can overdose somebody with the peptides. Um, and you don't have any fear other than, you know, wasting some money and having to swallow extra extra capsules. You're not going to harm them. Yeah. And I think that what bears repeating here as well is this whole modulatory effect of the peptide on the target organ glander system. What I mean by that, and and the thyroid is is one of the best examples for this, only because so many people, if you don't have it yourself, you probably know someone whose thyroid is underactive or overactive, less commonly overactive, but underactive. And, um, and what the th thyroid bioregulator will do, it's not going to boost or suppress anything. It's going to normalize function. Because if you think about it, if you regenerate that gland, it, will, it should resume function as it should have was intended in the first place. I think that one of the things that people sometimes miss and that we have to talk about is before you can bring the, the thyroid, and actually I may be talking out of turn here, but before you bring the thyroid bioregulator on board and can expect it to truly do its work is, is there an, an immune process in the body where the body is attacking the thyroid? In which case you might have to deal with that before you can expect the bioregulator to do its thing. Or is there a deficiency of iodine or an excess of something that's blocking iodine or selenium, like all of those different cofactors that we need are necessary for the thyroid to do its work need to be present before the bioregulator can do its thing. Would you agree with that? Or like Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the other thing is that in the Institute, which has a, a medical clinic attached to it, they have the sure. Institute where they do the science and the development and so forth. They also then have a medical uh, facility where Russians come in and can get treatment. And the treatment is 90% bioregulators. And people fly in from various parts of the world, prime ministers, et cetera, et cetera, come in and get uh, treatment. They'll, stay, they'll typically stay for ten, two weeks or so. Um, and begin a course, sometimes it's, oftentimes it's with synthetics because the synthetics are faster acting. Uh, but the long-term is, is the natural uh, peptide bioregulators. And they may come back every couple of years, particularly the vision people will come back, the retina people will come back uh, once or twice a year for additional, because that, the retina issues are, are difficult. And the Russians never, ever, I shouldn't say never, ever to anything, but rarely, use one peptide to address a, a regeneration. Yeah. It's always a combination of peptides because unlike here in America where the conventional doctors, if you go in with a medical problem that relates to, let's say, a kidney, they just address the kidney. Yeah. That's it. Okay. And their, their medical bag says inside kidney pharmaceuticals and they you know, prescribe it and so forth. The Russians don't do it that way. They know that you're, it's part of a system. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so the typical, uh, if they were treating, if they're in Russia, uh, if they were treating a condition, they would probably like heart disease, they would probably use five different peptides, an arterial peptide, the heart peptide, the liver peptide, always the thymus peptide, almost always the pineal peptide. Um, it's always a combination, almost always at least three peptides at a time for regeneration. Yeah. Now, 
here in the clinical study, we're not treating medical conditions. We're, we're treating aging, which in the United States is not considered a, a medical condition or a disease. Um, but we use, I would say the average person in the clinical study is probably using five or six different peptides every month. Yeah. The reason for that is I, I have a sense of, after doing this for a number of years, I have a sense of which peptides that are most effective for telomerase activation or telomere lengthening. Mm-hmm. We don't know at this point exactly what we have to do in terms of DNA methylation to affect that regeneration and and reducing the biological age as they call it uh, yeah. as, Hor- as Horvath says we don't have a pill well we have a whole bunch of pills but I don't know which ones and so <clears throat> we use them all on the theory that since Horvath's clock epigenetic clock is measuring biological age of the system yeah we're assuming that the component parts need to be addressed and so we use all 23 peptides over the course of a year to address all of those the payoff on that is more than just changing Horvath's epigenetic clock. The payoff is those last studies that you saw where we have total organ regeneration and inc- incredible reduction in mortality risk. Exactly. Well, it speaks to the upgrading of, of, of the system. Yeah, it's my 50 Chevrolet being That's rebuilt. Right. That's right. So yeah. I wanted to ask you a question, and and if you you know anything, if if you're if you have more insight into this, in one of the books that I that I've read about this, they describe, and and when I read this, it stopped me in my tracks. Like it was, it, I envisioned this most elegant process happening in the body, where they talk about epitalon attack finding its receptor, like we showed in that image much earlier with the pancreatin in the DNA. But when epitalon finds its receptors, it allows the DNA to unfold. Yes. And when the DNA unfolds, it now free it, it now presents or makes available a receptor for another peptide. For example, I think in the example given in the book, it may have been the cartilage peptide, cartilax. Um, and so that now the cartilage peptide would attach to the DNA, and which may speak to a lot of the thing. Well, it may speak to the science of com- combinations of peptides where if we understand that epitalon is going to make the the binding site more available for the cartilage peptide we would automatically use those together and if maybe we know that two peptides are competing for the same receptor if that's even possible we might avoid pairing those those bioregulators is that is no, that it's something not possible. that's no they don't they never compete for the same receptor they're so specific okay yes. yeah no. okay that makes sense yeah um, um, you could take all 23. I mean, no one would need to do this. You could take all 23 of the natural peptides and none of them would be competing against the other because it's like salmon, you know, going back to their spawning ground. Yeah. They go to their individual place that they need to go to. Right, right. Oh, right. Because it's going to be in different, in yes. di- at different binding sites. They're just, yeah. a, they're na- they have a natural affinity for whatever yes. organ. Yeah, you would never find, for instance, the cartilage uh, receptors in the heart, and you would therefore never have a cartilage peptide going to the heart. Right, but yeah, no, that's that makes that makes total sense. But but was it really interesting how they kind of 
they describe this process in this book. Mm. So I was, and I was trying to understand because epitalon, you would think has that affinity for the pineal gland. Mm-hmm. So what a is pineal epitalon doing in cartilage or what is cartilage doing mm-hmm. in the pineal gland? So it was, it was just, um, maybe it was just a theoretical example. I'll have to go back to it. I'll mm. send it to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Get all, all crossed up in this stuff. Okay. So, Um, A couple of very quick short fire questions, because Mm -hmm. we've been going a long time. We've taken up a lot of your time. So and you've already said this. There's no interactions with medications when it comes to these bioregulator peptides. None Um, whatsoever. Yeah. Possibly the only thing people have to look out for is if they're on medication for a specific thing, a.k.a. thyroid medication. Keep an eye on whether or not you may need to talk to your doctor if you were going to take matters into your own hands. Definitely, you want to keep an eye on how you're responding to your medication because it may need to be changed as your body changes from the bioregulator. Um, And then people ask as well about interactions with hormone therapy. None whatsoever. Right. Um, We talked about stacking, which we talked about before. Um, Last thing is somebody in my group um, was asking about or was saying, was speculating that people might be able to form autoantibodies to um, the animal bioregulators. And I deferred to you in that question. I said, I'm talking to Dr. Lawrence today, and he will answer that question. Um, In the years that you've been working with the bioregulator peptides, have you ever seen somebody have an allergic or immune response to an animal bioregulator? No, I haven't. And... uh... Oh, probably I've used, oh, I don't know, 5,000 boxes of peptides <laughs> or, or more. But, but, you know, thinking about it, you could actually have a person, if a person was specifically allergic to beef, basically, to, to calf meat, um, I've never seen any study. Well, the Russians have done extensive studies in terms of safety and so forth, you know, 30, 40 years ago. They've, they've never had an issue with, but I, I would think theoretically, if a person had a strong <clears throat> allergic reaction to beef, I wonder if they wouldn't have I don't some, know that that protein would be present, though. I, I, I know. I, that's why I say it's theoretical. I've never heard of it. I would think, the, no, the answer is probably no. But yeah. as a scientist, I have to keep my brain open to yeah. yeah. No, listen, like you, I've stopped saying no, never. Yeah. I've yeah. just said, never seen it. There's yeah. always the first time. <laughs> and, and, you know, maybe to shed some light on it, what this person was also would then used as his backup was that, well, he's seen somebody um, have a poor reaction to cerebrolysin. Well, my response to that is cerebrolysin isn't bioregulator. A. Right. It's a synthetic. It, it's as, well. And, and even if it's not the, the, the biologic, it's, it's extract. It's of, yeah, it's extracts of proteins and peptides from pigs' brains, I think. So yeah. it's a completely different compound, and it's way more than our two to four amino acid chains. Yeah, and uh, for instance, a good example is that um, with thyroid medication, uh, some people do really well on armor, the natural, mm-hmm. and th- they react badly to the synthroid, the synthetic. Yeah. And vice versa all the time. Yeah. And so people will find that they can do well on one, but not on the other. Yeah. Yeah. So who knows what, and I think, you know, I, I would guess that the, the actual animal derived bioregulator versus the synthetics, you're getting other cofactors 
with Absolutely. those, those yeah. amino acids that aren't present in the synthetic, which could explain why, you know, they work the same, but different. One is slower, longer acting. The other one is faster, shorter acting. So, you know. Yes. And in our clinical studies, we only use, you know, the, the natural peptides in the, at the clinic, they start people with the synthetic uh, analogs for the uh, naturals. And then, but that's usually only a short time, maybe a couple of weeks or so, maybe a month at the most. Yeah. And then they go to the natural for the long-term treatment. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, this as just like last time was incredibly enlightening. Thank you well, good. so much. Good. It's um, been my pleasure. Yeah. Well, it's been, uh, it's been great. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. So I just want to thank you so much for your time and for sharing this information with people, because I think that for people to understand that there is not only light at the end of the tunnel, but there's now some, some skylights in the tunnel. <laughs> there's, there's... <laughs> you know, what, what, what I want for everybody, I'm, I'm obsessed, of course, with, with my longevity because I, I love waking up every day. I have this, you know, my life has been like everyone else's and that is, you know, there have been difficulties and so forth. Um, I had a, a professor long, long time ago. I can't remember if it was a law professor or medical or whatever. He said to a class of us, he said, he would rather he would he would rather have the worst day of his life than not. Mm-hmm. And it took me a moment. I remember thinking, hmm, "Oh, I get that. Yeah, I'm 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 with you. Yeah, I'll take the worst day of my life as long as I can have the day because then there are going to be some really good days. And and my life has been like everyone's. I've had challenges and so forth. Um, but it's so exciting for me. I mean, it sounds like a cliche to be able to wake up every morning and have the gift of another day. And, uh, you know, we, oftentimes people will ask me, well, what are, the th- what are the interventions that are really good? You know, and I talk about diet, exercise. But the one that's, I think, really important for me is just gratitude. Mm-hmm. Gratitude that I have the opportunity, as crazy as this world is these days, particularly. No kidding. The gratitude to be alive and to be going through the process of life and the people that are in my life and what I'm doing, my work and other things, to have that is just incredible. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very well said. And I think e- that- Even the yucky stuff sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's having that overriding sense of purpose and gratitude, which we talk yeah. about as being two of the most critical underpinnings of having a good life and, and of health, right? Yeah. So, yep. um, okay. thank you so much for that. And- yep. um, and. Who know? I think we'll do a part three someday and maybe in a year talking about some new or maybe less whenever you we'll have see. Yeah. We'll see, Natalie. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application. Just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.